Hey everybody, this is Ray Telsh, and this is episode 81 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie selected specifically by our guest that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. Hope the week is going well for you. It is time for our Thursday movie discussion, and this week uh, sees the return yet again of Thomas Mariani. Uh, I don't even know what to say that I haven't said before. Thomas has been on the show uh, quite a few times now. Uh, This is his fourth movie discussion, plus his Oscar appearance. So, uh, you know, you've heard it before when he's been on the show. I love talking movies with this guy. And although I am trying to space out reappearances a bit, he did offer to do one of the Halloween horror movies this year. So... I was happy to have him, you know, come on the show again. And he picked a really interesting movie, uh, Green Room, which does not stand out to me uh, as a horror movie when I think about horror films, but ended up being a really, really great film uh, with a great discussion, including what is a horror movie? Something that Thomas and I kind of dive into. What what makes a movie a horror movie? Uh, and we jump into that kind of right at the get-go and it ended up being a much deeper conversation than I expected. So I hope you enjoy listening to this movie discussion as Thomas and I dive into 2015's Green Room. I had something pop up on my Facebook feed. Um, I mean, it's, we're getting into that time of year where where certain questions always pop up. Uh, you know, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? And one popped up on my Facebook feed that I, I, I've seen before, and I didn't really think of it as like a cyclical question, but I'm going to ask you because it, it almost kind of relates to the movie you picked to talk about today, which is, is Jaws a horror movie? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you think so? Yeah, I would argue it is. It's pretty much it has like a weird sort of early version of a slasher film structure and that people get picked off one by one by one. Um, and it's it's spooky. It's scary. I think that's the thing is like a big reason I chose this movie anyway. It's just I when I used to do like the stuff with Horror News Radio and Gruesome Magazine, I had a lot of fond memories there. But some of like the few huge issues I had were dealing with people saying what is or isn't a horror movie. Right. Which... I always just found kind of frustrating because after a certain point, like genre is only really needed just to give a broad description to somebody who's just like, Hey, what's a good horror movie or whatever. Like it was, it's something that like really worked to curate like a video store back in the day. And now it's just to give people a vague idea of like, it's a scary movie or a horror movie or whatever. After that point, I don't really like the idea of delineating, Oh, like elevated horror or whatever, which is technically kind of a part of like, but I just I hate that whole like delineation when genre becomes kind of gatekeepy in a way that I think is just really detrimental to the genre. That's a really interesting way of putting it. I hadn't thought about it in that terms. Um, yeah, I mean, it's I, I I can understand that having also worked for you know gruesome magazine and such. We we never had that conversation about whether something was a horror movie, but there there certainly were movies. I, I mean, horror is an easy genre I think for for starting filmmakers to jump into. And I think that's why you get so many independent horror films as opposed to independent sci-fi or even just comedy or drama, because it gives them something definitive to latch onto. But I, I think you're right. It's almost, it is almost gatekeeping with the genre. Like, I would almost classify a lot of Jaws as just a straight drama, you know, because you have all these scenes of these men interacting and the dynamic between them and that kind of stuff. And that has nothing, the shark is the impetus that puts them together. But it has nothing to do with the shark who's just an off-screen threat. So there are parts of it that are very dramatic. But then once you do get the shark in, you're right. It does have the 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 slasher film aspects to it. I mean, it does have some some gore, you know, I mean, for, for that time period. I had never thought about it before. And it was a conversation I saw going on. I was like, well, I, I've always considered Jaws to be a horror movie. So, but but I it's not the first time I've seen that conversation. Yeah. To claim that like it's more of like the drama, I think also is to kind of like try and worve around like whether you're from like the critical side and you're like, oh, I like a horror movie, therefore it's something different than a horror movie or the opposite angle. Like I'm a horror fan and critics usually hate these movies, but they like this one. Therefore, I'm not like going to like fully embrace it as a horror movie. Like this was more a case when I'm talking about the horror news radio stuff, mainly with like the fan base. Like I remember there was something where Wes Anderson was quoted as like, I would like to do a horror movie. I think it'd be fun. And I just got like in a comment back and forth with this dude about where it's just like, he's trying to get in on the horror fan base and he's just trying to get like bonus points for us, but he's not a true horror person. Like who gives a flying fuck? <laughs> <laughs> 
I would love to see a Sanderson horror movie. That would be cool. His aesthetic would fit perfectly for like a meticulous horror comedy of sorts. I would love to see that. I'd love to see people experiment with the genre, especially who don't do that often. Sometimes you get the best horror films that way. Sure, sure. Well, and and I mean, you and I have, have talked about it. I don't ever think on Mike, but you know, I mean, Kevin Smith making the decision, he wanted to make a horror movie. And we got Red State out of that which is not what I would consider to be a traditional horror movie, but it, it is a horror movie and it is, mm-hmm. it definitely has that Smith feel to it. And I, I don't think it's a brilliant movie, but I lauded Smith for stepping out of his comfort zone and doing something that wasn't just, you know, Dick and fart jokes. And, 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 and we've seen, I mean, like when I came on your show and we talked about yoga hosers, which is a whole other problem, but I don't have a, I don't like if Wes Anderson wanted to do a horror movie. Sure. I'd be game for that. Bring his, his very odd uh, visual sense, visual style to a horror film. Sure. I'd be game for that. (laughs) Yeah. Totally. I mean, at the point that Michael Bay uh, decided to do, what was it? Pain and gain Mm that would, you know, which is not a big blockbuster, lots of explosions, that kind of stuff. And it was like, well, you know, you got to give him points for stepping out of his normal genre. You know, it doesn't always work out, but I, yeah, I, you're, I think you're right. And, and genre becomes a problem too with like, with, with like Academy Awards or just awards in general. Like we know for a fact that there are certain genres that awards just, they don't even consider those movies because it's a horror movie or because it's a superhero movie or that kind of stuff. And sometimes those movies are worthy of that kind of consideration despite their genre. Or even when something does get nominated, then we have like declassification, like Get Out was the most recent example where people want to delineate like, oh, that's more of a thriller because it got Academy Award nomination. So it's a horror movie. It's a great horror movie. Yeah. And it earned all this nomination and the win that it got for the screenplay one. Well, and and, and you're going to you're calling me on my own shit before we get into it. But isn't isn't a thriller movie a horror movie? I mean, isn't it just a different way of of kind of categorizing that feeling that we get from watching it. I mean, yeah, we've had this problem even on our show too, where we love doing horror stuff. And whenever we've gone to thrillers, it's always kind of been a weird dance of like, is it more of the horror or thriller? Like that argument goes back to like people could have, I've had arguments with people who say like, oh, Halloween is a thriller movie. I'm just like, I, guys, it's just like at a certain point. <laughs> this, I guess it's at a certain point, it's just like, is that really that big of a deal to delineate these two? Right, right. So it it is the spooky season. Uh, what have you been watching lately, or what is on your list? I I know stuff you've been watching for your podcast, um, but uh, uh, elsewhere, what are, what are, what are you watching? What's catching your eye? Um, I've been what I like to do with the horror season is dig back to like some familiar ones, but also pick up some blind spots and some cool new ones they hadn't seen before. Um, in terms of blind spots, one of my favorites I've watched so far has been The Hidden which is this movie from like 87 that's about basically an alien slug has come to earth and is like jumping from body to body and killing people. And it's both like a cop movie that stars like Kyle MacLachlan is like the FBI agent who's teaming up with a local cop who's trying to stop like this alien slug from killing a bunch of people. It's dope. <laughs> it sounds really interesting. I, I, I know the name and like I can even picture like the title treatment You know, from like the poster or the DVD cover or whatever, but I I can't say I've seen that one. That's cool. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. And you just recently covered uh, the empty man on your podcast. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't stop when you guys said stop, but I did immediately after your conversation, put it on my watch list of like, I need to see this movie. Like it sounds really awesome. And the fact that you guys address that it has a pretty long runtime. Uh, you guys addressed that in the conversation. We're like, you know, this is like, and you you persuaded me over the course of your conversation to want to watch that one. So that definitely is on my list now. Yeah. And if folks, if you're listening and you have not seen The Empty Man, uh, if you got that HBO Max, fire it up because uh, that shit's great and got really <laughs> dumped by COVID and Fox Disney. Um, right. So it's, it's definitely worth seeking out. Okay. Last one before we get into the actual movie conversation. What's your least favorite horror movie? Like, what's one that you, like, people, uh, uh, you know, that people praise and you've watched it and you were just like, what a piece of garbage? Um, I don't know if it's my absolute least, but I think just indicative of this filmmaker who I don't like is uh, Cabin Fever from auteur Eli Roth. Oh, I love Cabin Fever. Not a fan. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I mean, I know lots of people who don't like it. I know that I am in the minority on that film, but I really, I loved it when it, now given I haven't seen it in like a decade, but I loved it when it came out. Yeah. I'm just not a big fan of that dude. It's like when your best film is the house with the clock in its walls, 
the Jack Black, Kate Blanchett kids <laughs> horror movie. It's like the one I would just like, this is all right. <laughs> you, you know, you're a bit in trouble. All right. Well, let's get into the movie you did pick for this week's discussion, uh, which I, I will admit when I've watched it, my first thought was this isn't a horror movie. This is a thriller, which is why I, I, I laughed a minute ago because it was like, wait, I'm just as guilty as anybody else of this shit. Um, you picked 2015's Green Room, written and directed by Jeremy Saulnier, starring Anton Yelchin, Imogen Poots, Aaliyah Shawkat, and Patrick. Patrick Stewart. Gentlemen, I hope you appreciate the situation. Things have gone south. No doubt. Now, whatever you saw, or did is no longer my concern. But let's be clear. It won't end well. You're coming. Before we get into my usual questions and stuff, I'm, uh, you know, it's, I find it funny. You are quite frequently kind of my go-to person when somebody recommends a movie that I'm not familiar with, and I read the description, and and I'm like, eh, is this something I want to cover? Like, I came to you when The Devil's Rejects was picked because I, I'm not a huge mm-hmm. Rob Zombie fan, and I know some of his movies are 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 really not good. And like, I came to you and we're like, is this one worth it? Like, is there going to be a decent discussion in it? And and so you picked Green Room. I can't come to you and go, what do you think about this movie? Because you're the one who picked it and i ran it by another friend and uh he had not seen it but he pointed out like he had kind of the same mentality i had towards it which was it came out when the torture porn trend was going on which i i hated that that whole trend and and so i was kind of iffy about those kinds of movies and he was like well from what i'm reading this one's pretty gory and it's pretty intense it may very well be along those same lines and i'm like well i'm going to trust in thomas but okay and now I'm going into it kind of iffy. And I, first of all, I have to say it's it's obviously not those things, which was really good. But it's I didn't think it was a horror movie. I I I think it's suspenseful. And we'll get into that. How do you describe this movie to someone who hasn't seen it? How do you sell them on it? Because you picked it as a spooky pick. What what's your take on this movie? Um, the way I would probably sell it is recommending it's basically like the best John Carpenter movie that John Carpenter didn't make. There is definitely John Carpenter influence in this film. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, that's that's a good way of of putting it together. Yeah, I like that. And and I, I think maybe that thriller suspense type mentality I have towards it. That's that's true of a lot of John Carpenter films as well. So yeah, okay, all right. Uh, so what is your history with this movie? When did you? I mean, it, it only came out six years ago. Where did you see it when it first came out? Because it was on my radar and like Patrick Stewart. How can I not watch it? But yet I hadn't pulled the trigger on it until you picked it for the show. Yeah, I saw it when it was released in theaters, which you said 2015, but like that was when it was its festival run, and then it came up by 2016 to like major theaters. Right. And I saw it in the theater. I was one of the few theaters that was playing it. And I'll say that it's one of my favorite theatrical experiences I've had in the last several years, where the tension was so palpable in the audience that when it's relieved by some of the horrific, gory moments, particularly one that will probably spotlight here um you could feel people like losing the breath in their air like in their mouth in their lungs just like exhausting out mm-hmm. it was like one of those smaller theaters in the multiplex and you could just like it was so palpable in that audience and i think that's the thing is i i was doing this because we covered it on horn radio back at that time and i kind of mentioned this earlier that this was part of sort of the trend of like uh a24 becoming a big thing this is an a24 film and they had released a bunch of the horror movies previously like the witch and some of these others that divided so many horror fans in general just like oh they're like slow and boring or no they're really character driven and meticulous and fascinating and i would put that amongst those nothing else because like anyone who wants to argue that this is not a horror movie i think the big thing that i kept especially watching at this time it's the first time since that theatrical experience i've watched it is i don't think this is any different from like any sort of like satanic cult movie mm-hmm. it's just that the satanic cult is not this like big over the top like we're in robes and we're awful it's they're human beings. 
and right. even like the the Nazi characters who are main characters run against are these human people and they have like actual like layers to them which makes them so much more terrifying and so much more monstrous i think this is a prime example of a horror movie where the main threat is a monstrous human person who you could yeah. actually feel like you would meet in real life in the most terrifying circumstance and that I, I was even telling a friend about this after I watched it. That is the terrifying part of this movie. It isn't even the situation that they're in, although that's a bad situation to be in. But the meticulousness, the methodical mentality, the thoroughness, and just the brilliance of the leader of these people they are up against is scary as hell. You know, they they, yeah. they have that scene, the, the the doorway negotiation scene is what I kind of called it when they're when they're he the main character, uh, the leader the, the the leader he's not really the leader but the leader of the band played by Anton Yelchin, and the leader of the neo Nazis played by Patrick Stewart are negotiating through this closed doorway, and Stewart is terrifying in that scene. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like Jesus, like that's not who I would want to be negotiating against. Right. And I think the brilliance of his performance is that you think like the first thing I heard about this movie in general was like, oh, Patrick Stewart plays the leader of like a neo-Nazi cult. That right. sounds fascinating. I can't wait to say that it's probably going to be a big performance. And it's not. No. And that's what's so terrifying about it. Because even his voice, which to be fair, is a bit of him kind of compensating for his very English accent. <laughs> it's kind of like mumbly, a uh, little like Southern drawl kind of voice. But at the same time, that's so affecting because when you hear him, he is like if you listen to his words on paper, like you read what he was saying, it sounds on paper, just like, okay, he's trying to be kind of civil with this, whatever, whatever. But it's like, he's so unassuming that the fact that he's this manipulative makes it so much more terrifying. That he's like this massive cult leader. Oh, the, 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 one of the most terrifying lines he delivers has nothing to do with what's going on, but it is, and I'll, I'll give kind of a synopsis of the film here in a second, but he's, you know, he's walking down the hall. There's a dead body in the green room. They have this group of, of, uh, uh, these this band that they're having to deal with who are now witnesses to it locked in the green room and he points at the gear that's in the hall and goes this is a fire hazard and it's like we were told earlier like two scenes earlier that he is very conscientious about the the fire hazards in the hallway and it's like you got such bigger stuff going on and you're worried about this kit being in the hallway being a fire hazard and you're saying it with such menace that if i were one of the neo-nazis following around it'd be like get this shit out of the way right now like don't we're not forget about the big situation we're dealing with this right now one line that really hit me especially was the point where he addresses the the club after their generator goes out and he's just like i'm sorry we're all gonna have to go back home uh if anyone's coming to the racial advocacy meeting on Wednesday, right. which immediately is just like, oh my God, what is he talking about? Right. <laughs> like just the, the implications of that very small line already, just like that has so much unsettling potential to it. All right. So to give a quick synopsis of the uh, movie, for those of you who have not seen this, it is uh, about a, a punk rock band that ends up playing in this venue uh, that is a neo-Nazi venue. And when they finish their set and return to the green room to, uh, to get their gear and leave, uh, there is a dead body on the floor uh, with a knife sticking out of her head. And now they are witnesses to this crime. And they quickly realize that this is a situation that they need to get out of and they're not able to. And that's that's pretty much the summary you get. Um, Anton Yelchin plays uh, one of the band members, as does Aaliyah Shawkat, um, you know, from Arrested Development and more recently from um, Search Party. Uh, mm -hmm. And and this is a nice like I if I had not seen Search Party yet, this movie, her performance in this movie would have absolutely blown my mind because it's like, oh, my God, maybe he's grown up. But having seen Search Party before I saw this, it's like. Yeah, this this makes sense as the bridge between those two shows. Like because Search Party is a very very mature character for her compared to the the comedy that was Arrested Development. Yeah, I need to see Search Party. I haven't. I've heard it's a great show. Oh, you you and Adam need to do that for your next uh, TV dive. Oh yeah, the television for Patreon. Maybe who knows? Yeah, but. I mean, I I, that, I had that experience with this movie because the last time I'd seen her anything was those weird revival episodes of Rest Development we don't talk about anymore. I still um, haven't seen. <laughs> yeah, just imagine it ended on the third season. But, uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, I had that definite experience here. And then even with Yelchin, which I think we should probably address this now. Yeah. Unfortunately, especially because this, I hadn't seen this since it came out one because of the actual movies a bit intense, but also this was the last movie that came out in theaters before he tragically died. Right. 
And I even said like, oh man, I can't wait to see more of what this stuff this guy does. And when that announcement like came out of his death, that was one of those celebrity things where usually I'm like, oh, that's a unfortunate, that's sad, that's such a you know interesting actor or director or whatever. He's was one of those ones like Heath Ledger where I was just like, that this isn't right. Yeah. This is like a weird like misprint or something. And it's it's such a shame even seeing here. It hits differently. Especially if you compare the performance he puts forward in this movie with like some of the bigger blockbusters he was in. Like he was in the Star Trek movies and he was in uh, one of the Terminator sequels. Uh, I don't remember which one because it wasn't good. Uh, Salvation, baby. (laughs) Oh, that's the one. Yeah. And, And those movies, he was just a cog in a machine. You know, it's a big blockbuster picture. It's more about the special effects and that kind of stuff. And and his performances were good. Don't get me wrong. Like, I enjoyed him in that Terminator movie. But the performance he gives here is like, oh, that's right. This is an actor. And this is him doing that. You know, it's like, this is the role that you watch. And it's heartbreaking that, you know, we've, we lost him far too young. Because, man, he he he's amazing in this film. I would so recommend also as a slight tangent, the love and Tasha documentary okay. that came out about him. Um, it's a documentary very much about like everybody kind of looking back at him, especially the fact that like, not only was he, it's so tragic that he died so young because he was so young, but also he was a committed actor who yeah. had like so many, like he really studied and he really wanted to differentiate himself. And this feels so much like, of course, at this point in his career, he would want to do something like this off the branch where in on paper, it could be like, Oh, you're like the lead of this movie. And you get to be like the head of like a siege basically movie. And, but in practice, it's like, he's so much more frail and he has so much more like vulnerability to him in a way that few other actors could really display. But that Antasha movie goes into a lot of that. Um, I would recommend it. Uh, You all will cry when you watch it, but (laughs) nothing else. Like the brilliance of that movie is like, he has a lot of journal entries that he made. And all of them are read by Nicolas Cage in the documentary because they were like friends. He had worked with them previously. And there's a point where Cage reads one of those letters. I won't say what it entails, but he like vocally breaks up during it. Uh-huh. It's like that beautiful a bit. Well, and it's it's interesting you say that because Saulnier is kind of in this the same boat. I mean, not having passed away, of course, but that's part of why he made this movie is he's coming off the heels of of, of a big success. And he basically felt like if he didn't make this movie now, he would not get the opportunity to later. And if he wasn't the one to make this movie, nobody would really get the opportunity. Like he just felt like he was perfectly placed to make the movie that he wanted to make at that point in his career. Yeah, I recently, because this was the first of his movies I'd seen, and I hadn't seen some of the earlier ones in particular, so I, re- I watched for the first time Murder Party, his first movie, which is like a horror comedy thing. It's kind of, it's fun for like a low-budget one, and Blue Ruin, uh, which is an astonishing film. I See, I haven't seen either of those, and this makes, like, I haven't seen any of his other work. This makes me want to see more, because I think his direction and his vision are so solidly put together on screen. Yeah, and he also does a really good job of like a lot of genre deconstruction where like Blue Ruin is basically like a revenge movie from someone who is incapable of extracting revenge in like a Liam Neeson way, just like a very everyman who just screws up at every single turn with doing a revenge movie. And in the case of this movie, it feels like it has like the precision of a John Carpenter, but it it stars like a bunch of people who aren't really that proficient. This movie has like really lavishes in people screwing up. And people right. not being able to like hit the right thing at the right time. Like one of my favorite bits is Leah Shawkat when they're about to like leave the green room for the first time and they like break down the door and she throws that uh fluorescent light bulb out mm-hmm. and no one's there. She's like, shit. <laughs> like you just wasted your weapon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, let's get into the critical side of things because I have so much more I want to say, but I want to make sure we get this in. The movie sits at at 90% at Rotten Tomatoes. So it is, it is a well-liked movie. Uh, 75% audience score sits at 79% at Metacritic. And uh, as usual, I pull in a positive and a negative review that kind of hits some of the things that I, I'm hoping we will touch upon. Um, the negative review comes from Owen Gleiberman of the BBC. And he writes, Saulnier knows how to stage the slashing of somebody's arm so that you feel like it's your own. But he comes on at almost every moment like a prodigy of grimy neorealism. And that's the problem with his direction. He can't do a simple setup shot without the camera curling around, revealing the gradations of lurid punk light, which isn't great filmmaking. It's atmosphere laid on with a trowel. Halfway through, you realize that the movie is failing to supply any hint of dramatic trickiness or genuine suspense. It doesn't build. It just grinds on. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's another one of those cases where I read the review and go, did you watch the same movie I did? 
Well, I mean, also, like, it's Owen Gleiberman who recently got in a lot of trouble for, like, that one review that he posted. Uh, right. I think it was, like, the Halloween movie, just, like, a movie, uh, you know, they were talking about the original Halloween, a movie, of course, that is infamous for just ripping off Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's like, oh, and what? you're a good writer, but, like, if you don't like horror movies, don't write about them. <laughs> well, and as I said, 90% at Rotten Tomatoes, so the negative reviews were kind of slim pickings. <laughs> um, the positive review comes from Lanika Cruz of The Atlantic, uh, and she focuses on the performances in this she writes the film wouldn't have worked half as well without the stellar performances of its cast as pat yelchin from alpha dog and the star trek reboot lurches between defeated and defiant and turns out to be the closest thing the band has to a leader imogen poots 28 weeks later frank and lola is unreasonably charming as amber the band's new ally and Aaliyah shawcat yup maybe funke from arrested development plays up sam's level-headed cool amidst chaos the skinhead lackey gabe the delightful macon blair saulnier's longtime collaborator and friend goes about fixing his boss's problem as though it's just another crappy day at the office meanwhile stewart takes a gus fring approach to his role as the neo-nazi leader trading a louder caricature of evil for a quieter matter-of-fact menace that's a really good description of comparison. It, it, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, I, I, I didn't think of Gus Fring when I was watching the movie, but as soon as I read the review, I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's very astute. And, and I mean, we kind of just talked about the fact that it, it is that quieter, uh, performance that he gives that makes it so terrifying. Yeah. It's a, it's a more natural human evil. Yeah, I mean it's it's I, I his performance in this movie, and of course that's that's the reason it hit my radar in the first place is it's got Patrick Stewart in it. And I'm a huge Patrick Stewart fan, but this is I I likened it again talking to a friend, and it was just kind of a, a point of comparison. You know, you you think Patrick Stewart, and you think you know fun funny fun guy, and you know like I think of that that clip from extras where he's talking about his script and, you know, of course, Patrick, you know, John Luke Picard and all that kind of stuff. Not that Picard didn't have somber, you know, emotional moments because he certainly did, but watching him play this is kind of akin to seeing David Tennant, who everybody knows is like the fun doctor and, you know, he's funny and he's hilarious and he's jumping, running around and then seeing him as uh, in uh, uh, Jessica Jones Mm -hmm. as the purple man. And it's like, he's terrifying there. And I, I don't think the performances are on the same level. I think Patrick Stewart is far more terrifying here. But it's again, it's kind of really interesting to see an actor that you're so used to seeing this performance out of and then getting to see something that is completely opposite what you're used to seeing and, and being able to just really appreciate how brilliant that actor is in the roles that they're taking on. Yeah, and there's no, the line must be drawn here. Yeah. Here. <laughs> Oh, one of my favorite Jean-Luc Picard moments. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> so I, I do think, um, I, I, I like the way the movie is put together. I, I disagree with Gleiberman. I think, I, I think the, the, the atmosphere is just right, but I don't think it's heavy-handed. You know, I mean, it's I, I, one of the things I marveled at is how much of this movie is just single location. You know, is is the green room itself, and and while the green room certainly expands as they discover they're on top of this cache of heroin manufacturing, <laughs> and and of course the movie itself expands because we see the the neo Nazis outside of the green room and outside of the building as they're kind of plotting how they're going to deal with this. Um, it is a very limited location type film, and they really make the most of the locations they have. Yeah, I think it's definitely like a necessity, some mother of invention kind of thing with just how contained the whole movie is. That's why I think a lot of people also compare it to like a siege movie, which we don't even get that much nowadays. Right. Of just like a bunch of people in like a small, compact area, basically like fighting off against each other. And I think it works because especially like the, the, the look of that actual club in general, I think it's a way of like weirdly having this middle ground where like obviously the punk scene has a lot of unfortunate crossover with like white supremacist artists. Right. And it's sort of like them meeting on like not quite neutral ground, but at least like familiar ground to each of them. And then the moment they start with that Nazi punks fuck off song, it immediately just rises the tension. <laughs> Which I did not know that song. And, you know, I'm old, so, like, I couldn't make out what they were yelling, because they're not singing, they're yelling. It's punk music. And don't get me wrong, like, I was into punk music when I was uh, in my late teens. Like, I, Misfits, Corrosion of Conformity, uh, Guar is, is, hell, it's a local 
area band. So I'm not sitting here going, you know, damn noise. But when they were yelling the lyrics, I was like, I can't make out what it is. But it's obviously pissing the people off. So I'm all for it. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's that's what's so interesting, too, is just the fact that, like, immediately they start off on that foot. And even Anton Yolchin right before is just like, I came up with this idea, but I kind of regret it. <laughs> I don't know if this is such a strong idea. Um, but it's, it's like you you feel that club. Like, I've been in similar places. Not, by the way, Nazi clubs. I want to emphasize that. Not a bar full of neo-Nazis. Just <laughs> shitty dive bars. <laughs> That you you feel like this, like you've been in this kind of place where like you step in it and you're like, I don't want to put anything else besides my shoes near this floor. Right. Well, and that's one of the things I liked about the green room itself is when they first arrive at this at this venue, they're they're shown to the green room and it's like, man, this place is a dump. But as they're trapped in the green room, that feeling of it being a dump somehow even goes down like there's a degradation of like. Boy, remember when it felt like a dump and that was a good feeling as compared to being trapped here and like, like they could come through the freaking walls at any point. Like they're all concerned about the door. And I was like, you realize the walls here are probably not the highest quality, you know, the paint stripped away. And, uh, you know, I, it's, it's, I, I just, I really liked the atmosphere and the environment of the movie. And I, that's, I, that's one of the things that about that review that was like, what are you talking about? Like the feeling of hopelessness and and frankly, the the vibe of the movie as a whole, like, as I said, I was very worried that this was going to be torture porn, exploitive gore type thing. And it does have moments of gore. I don't think it's an excessively gory film by any means. And most of the actual violent acts that cause the gore are done off camera. We see the effect, mm. but our mind has to put together the cause. Like he sticks his hand out the door to throw them the gun. And when he pulls back his arm, it's, you know, it's shredded. It's, it's mauled, but we don't see it happen. And I think that's like the only real completely on camera gory moment we get is when Amber slices up the guts of the one guy. Yep. That's the moment I was talking about, by the way, in the theater where right. you just felt everyone exhale. <laughs> oh, sure. And I was, I was sitting there watching it and it was like, this is after the arm and they've, they've essentially traded an arm for an arm because his arm gets mauled at the same time that they break the arm yes. of their hostage. Who's, you know, the neo-Nazi member who's their hostage and, and the breaking of the arm happens on camera, but it's not graphic the mauling of the arm happens off camera and then you have him holding the guy in the chokehold and the chokehold and the chokehold and i'm like well this is violent but it's not gory and then when she takes that box cutter and slices open his stomach i was like oh shit because the movie hasn't been that kind of movie. Even the dogs attacking people happens off camera for the most part or there's the hint of it on camera but the actual violence isn't isn't seen the penetration is insane, but like when the like we see like the dogs, he's like licking up after they right. bit into people's throats, which is still so terrifying. I think which is what makes I think Solnier in his other movies he has a similar thing where like we don't see a lot of the violent effects in his movies, but we do see the aftermath and we live with that aftermath, right? Which is why I think makes him not exploitive. Like in a you know I mentioned Eli Roth or like the Hostel movies or some of those other ones where this feels like it's more of a post torture porn movie because that trend I would argue was more in like the two thousands and by twenty fifteen when this was in festivals and stuff is definitely coming from post that point of like all the like horrible torture porn that movies that had happened so it feels definitely more like well the torture we just hear what's going on with it and then see those after effects and it really hurts especially when you see fucking anton yolchin's like wrist is almost right. like hanging on a thread it's upsetting right yeah no but i but i i personally prefer that i mean it's it's early tarantino you know, Reservoir mm -hmm. Dogs. And everybody will tell you about the guy getting his ear cut off, but it happens off camera. We remember yeah. it. It's stuck that moment, especially because he plays, you know, the Steelers wheel along with it. It's like, that's locked in our memory if you've seen the movie. But the actual violent act takes place off camera. We just see the after effect of it. And I I think Saulnier uses that to great effect in this film. And I, I prefer that rather than the, the torture porn was all about what can we get away with showing on screen. And I, oh, there, were, there were quite a few torture porn movies that I felt like almost were a thinly veiled story to allow some really sick special effects and director people to work out their fantasies on camera. What are you talking about? Hostel is so pure. 
such a like, bring the kids. <laughs> I have, I have still never seen that movie. <laughs> <laughs> You're really gunning for Eli Roth this week, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, but but I I just I I I really enjoyed that, and I and I you're right. I mean, Yelchin, the way he treats his arm, and I and I pay attention to that kind of stuff because I hate it when movies like I, I think it's Prometheus where she essentially gives herself an abortion and staples herself back together, and then she's like climbing ladders and jumping around and stuff, and it's like no, she wouldn't be, no, she wouldn't be. And here he babies that arm pretty effectively the rest of the movie. There, I didn't catch a moment where he used it in a way that's like no, that arm got mauled. You would not be doing that. Like they even make a point of he couldn't he wouldn't be able to uh, uh, load the the shotgun. Yeah, I love like that point where they're all about to leave the green room, and he's just like, "No, I'm not going to take a weapon. I'm just going to run." Right. Well, that that scene, I and I loved like he starts giving what uh, Imogene Poot's character starts calling you know the pep talk. He starts talking about that game of paintball. Um, that he and his buddies had, and we get the the story gets interrupted. Like I, I personally, I loved that. First of all, I liked the story. I liked hearing the story. I liked seeing where it was going. And then suddenly it's like, oh, wait, no, we're in the middle of some real shit. We need to just get moving. Forget your story. And with one exception, one of the things I liked about this movie and the progression of story is there's only one point where I looked at the characters and went, that was a stupid thing to do. That was an unrealistically stupid move. Like almost every other move they make, I think anybody would have made. I think anybody would have negotiated, tried to negotiate the gun. You know, I think almost anybody would have attempted, you know, finally gone, yeah, we got to we got to get out of here. I think the one point that I thought was utterly stupid is once they had cleared out the bar trying to leave, like we're just going to run for it. And it's like, you, you got to know there are people waiting outside. You would like check it out. You wouldn't just bolt out the door and run. Yeah. But at the same time, like we, there's always that kind of armchair like well if i was in this situation i wouldn't quite do that i i don't believe so i would. right but i i totally believe that like even at that point it is just like a flight or flight kind of thing where she's like i gotta get the fuck out of here i don't know like i, I we just got like the momentum builds up in you it's right like i gotta i gotta get the hell out of here and then unfortunately that means Aaliyah gets her fate which is <laughs> again mostly off screen but we see the after effects and it's brutal Right. Well, and, and and that's exactly what I'm talking about, that armchair quarterbacking of, like, so many horror movies, the protagonists just do stupid shit, you know? And we watch mm-hmm. the movie and we're just like, come on, come, don't do not do that, come on. I mean, I love the, I think it's the Geico who did the advertisement about the kids who, like, run into the to the, the barn filled with chains and, and sharp weapons instead of getting in the car and leaving. And it's like, that's, because that's what happens in horror movies. And that's one of the things I liked about this movie is, with the exception of leaving the bar, I didn't second guess any of their actions. You know, it's like that. No, that. And that's what I, one of the things I liked about this. One of the things Saulnier was tr- trying to set out is this is an ordinary group of people. You know, he he said, you know, essentially and, and we as the audience were essentially in a detective story for a while, you know, as they're like trying to piece together what happened. But they're not detectives, you know, and yeah. then they're and then they're having to deal with the siege and try and, and stand uh, hold off people and that kind of stuff. But they're not action stars. You know, they're regular. They and they felt like the, the one the one exception to that is the. um Odin himself, you know, the the final standoff where Anton Yeltsin's character is like, you know, the guy, who are you? Odin himself. I was like, that is punk as fuck right there. <laughs> well, what, I, what I like even is the fact that like the movie is very much sort of addressing of like whether it is with the Nazis or the punk group that like when we see them initially, they put on the airs of like what they are. Right. They put on like, like we're a punk band. We're a bunch of like, you know, people who are like saying right to the Nazis, go fuck yourselves. We hate you guys. And then the moment things get real like that melts away which is so right. perfectly confident with like the desert island band conversations which which was one of the reoccurring themes you know conversations kept coming up through the movie that i really enjoyed like i liked that callback to that you know that they're they're asked that in the the interview that will be on the college radio station and you know they give all their their hard-ass answers but then later when it, it they're they're looking like they're dying and they give more honest answers you know they you go from punk bands uh, to Simon and Garfunkel <laughs> and Prince, yeah, and Prince. <laughs> and I love the one Which guy who's still still the misfits. <laughs> <laughs> That's true because it's like it, I love the fact that just like their guard is let down and they get to be like their true selves. Which is to say, like even like um, that was kind of addressed in one of the reviews earlier. But like Aaliyah Shawcat, who earlier on established like she's like the money person. She has the phone that she pays the bills with all this other stuff. But by the time we get to later on, where it's just like, oh, can you hold the gun? It's just like I don't feel comfortable doing this. 
Right. I don't want so like she can't be the leader in that situation, which fits perfectly for her character. That she can handle the money, but she can't be responsible in the middle of this crisis situation. So then Anton Yelchin has to kind of take the reins, but even then he can barely do it. Well, but let's be honest, there's not really much money for her to manage in the first place. I mean, that's we're introduced to that from the very beginning of the movie, where their 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 van is over on the side of the road in a cornfield. Uh, because the driver fell asleep while they were driving and they have to go siphon gas from other cars. You know, they don't have the money for gas. And and they even after the gig goes bad, the gig that they play in the uh, lunch diner and they're like, well, we have enough money for one tank of gas and then we'll have to siphon the rest of the way home. And it's like she didn't she didn't have much money to manage in the first place, <laughs> which I which I love. I mean, I think that's that's representative of her character. You know, she doesn't really have to have responsibility. So, you know, and, and so, yeah, give her the responsibility of the gun. She's not going to be comfortable with that. Nope. I, I wouldn't be comfortable with that if we were in that situation. I'd be like, Thomas, you get to take the gun. Oh, Jesus Christ. I don't want to. It's like you, me, Adam, in that situation. Oh, no. That'd be the worst possible fucking situation. <laughs> can can you and I make a pact right now that Adam goes first? That like we'll 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 bond together and we'll send Adam out first. <laughs> Rafe, I would not say that on Mike. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> uh, I'm glad I'm Adam recording with Adam before this episode airs. <laughs> <laughs> We'll get we'll get that rivalry going again. Hello, hello, hello. My name's Najee. Most people know me as Kami Jace, and I host the weekly cooldown, a podcast where we get to know the gaming news of the week and we get to know our guest. Every week, we sit down with a different streamer, a cosplayer, a game developer, a pro gamer, or a podcaster, and general overall giant nerd, and discuss the biggest stories of the week while also getting to know our guest, whoever they may be. You can tell a lot about someone based on what games they play and what they think about the news around them. And of course, there's so much gaming news to keep up with, so we do our best to keep you, the listener, informed. And if you want to keep up to date on the news and want to have a fun time doing so, listen to The Weekly Cooldown on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, no, the, the, the island band... Uh, you know, you, you have that come up a couple of times. And again, I, I like that that kind of reveals the characterization as it goes. The, the pep talk, the paintball pep talk story, you get a callback on that later on. Um, cause we have the scene as they're all prepping and then that goes really badly. And then Amber, uh, says that she wants to hear the rest of the story. You know, I mean, it's like, I, I liked how I, I like the pacing of the movie, you know, it's just, it's well plot it out and it doesn't it it's not incredibly long but it also doesn't feel incredibly long um and and it just it just moves i will say uh speaking of the performers i I spent like half the movie convinced that their lead singer was the same guy who was in uh scott pilgrim and it's not funny because there's another guy (laughs) it's not but one of the neo-nazis is that guy from scott pilgrim <laughs> yeah, Mark Weber, um, who is also great as one of the skinheads. But I like also when we ever we cut between like the green room and the skinheads, it's like in the green room, it's all like the frantic kind of like, what the hell are we going to do? We got to like plan something. We, we got to get out of the situation somehow. Meanwhile, the neo Nazis are all perfectly calm as we're yes. like, look, we got like, do, should we go with the dogs? Do you have like some other people? Like, what do you need? Basically, it, it becomes like it's like that one review mentioned, like a day at the office kind of thing. Where it's just like, okay, like how do we prep for the situation? How do we get through it? Like it's all practical, which is once again way more unsettling and evil that they're that practical about. Even the first confrontation after they see the dead body, and like they're all forced into the green room, and the lead of the other band, basically the guy who committed this murder, turns to them like he's being escorted out, and he turns to them and is like, You guys, your set was pretty good. What was the name of that next to the last song you guys played? And he's just, he's just calm and cold. And it's just like, he is like, they're like trying to figure out what the fuck to do. They've tried to call the police and he's just 
you know, it's like the 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 difference in their performances is just phenomenal. I I I, I really enjoyed this movie. In case you can't tell, for especially for something <laughs> I was hesitant to to go into in the first place. Um, yeah, and also shout out to like a Macon Blair who is like the recurring oh, kind of God. factor in so many years movies. Who I always think of as like Nathan Lane's very sad son is what he looks like. Um, but like the whole time, like, especially in that sequence where he's just like, he's treating like this whole situation. Like he's a middle manager. Like he's fucking Dwight Schrute. Right. He's just like, Oh fuck. I got to hold on. I got to handle this. And like, well, yes, uh, I was calling you about a stabbing and all that stuff with the phone. So good. Yeah. Well, and then at the end when they, when they catch him and he just says, I want to go to jail. Like he's, he's not a bad guy. Yes. He's okay. His, his, his morals are probably very bad because he's with these skinheads and, 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 you know, Nazi organization and that kind of stuff. And obviously that's, that's something he's willing to do. And he gets his, uh, red laces partway through the movie, but he also obviously feels guilt over what he does. And he, he would rather go to jail than be killed for what they've done. Um, so I, I actually felt bad for him at a certain point in the movie. I think when he's when he's sent to go clean up and the other two thugs are supposed to, to are, are finally allowed to use guns and are, are trying to take care of the last two members of the band, I started feeling bad for him. I was like, yeah, middle management, but he's he's he doesn't get to actually make any of the choices. He just has to do what the up you know what the boss says. Uh, and yet he's got the responsibility of it. And it's like I, I kind of felt bad for him. His performance is really good. I mean, you can also tell that, like, the fact that he's, like, the only person who feels like he's in the middle between, like, Patrick Stewart and the very young, like, guys who are basically the, the, right. the grunts. Like, you can tell that, like, Patrick Stewart has been, like, embracing these, like, people since they were kids because he's, like, the only sort of, like, big domineering force in, like, this Portland area, this backwards Portland area, which I also love. The fact that it's, like, this could have easily taken place, like, oh, it's, like, Deep South or whatever. It's, like, no, it's, like, <laughs> not too away from, like, fucking Portlandia, guys. Right. <laughs> like, this is happening. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, he, he really impressed me. And then the other thing there towards the end of the movie, after they've caught him and he just, I want to go to jail and that kind of stuff. And then they, 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 they finally, they're, I, 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 are they trying to get revenge? Are they trying to get closure? You know, who knows what it is, but they decide to go, go back to double check that their friends are actually dead, not leave anyone alive, you know, there. And they realize that the, the skinheads have, have laid out this crime scene. Like, they're controlling the narrative. That's what Patrick Stewart has been doing all along. That's why they couldn't use guns. That's why they couldn't do this, is he's controlling the narrative. And they see this crime scene, and there's the conversation about, does he want to disturb the crime scene, or does he want to create a new one? And it's this moment in movies like this, movies like 28 Days Later, where it's like, you've become the monster now. You were our hero, you were the person we were following, and now you've become the monster as well. And I'm not saying the neo-Nazis didn't deserve it, but those aren't the same characters that we started with at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, it's a thing where, like, Sonia loves to do this, where, like, with this ending, it could be done in a completely different situation. It's like a triumphant ending, a big right. fuck you. Like, yeah, they killed the Nazis. The, the, great, this is awesome. So triumphant and majestic. It is, like, full of so much, like, pathetic barely any kind of like energy left in it just like we let's just wrap this up we, we just need to get rid of this so this like we have some closure and even when him and emotion poots are like on the side waiting for the police to come the final shot there is no triumph there is no, no like well i can't believe we finally got this situation they're just like drained of any energy and they've lost so much oh, and, and this, no the, the the last lines of dialogue the you know i finally figured out who my island band is and a response is, well, tell it to someone who gives a fuck. And it's like, they're done. Like, she, she's done. I mean, she, which again is understand. I mean, she's not part of the band. Uh, and it was her best friend that got killed or her friend who got killed. So it's understandable that she's just like, the, but, but yeah, you're right. I mean, it's not. And, and the, the, the killing of the boss, the killing of Patrick Stewart's character, I almost felt as if that also was part of his plan. At a certain point, he's just kind of, like, make sure he doesn't get implicated. It's just to, like, go out in that kind of blaze, especially the way that he, like, unleashes his gun. It's right. very, like, matter of fact, almost like he's RoboCop. Right. Well, and it's it goes with what he says at the beginning when he first addresses that scene that scene you were talking about where he's addressing the skinheads after they, you know, they're closing down the club. And he says, you know, this is not a party. It's a movement. And it's almost as if he knows his death will help keep the movement alive. It will yeah. take care of this situation. So there won't be any pullback on on his boys, and it will keep the movement alive. Now I don't know who's going to run it. 
Because <laughs> as we said, uh, um, making Blair's character is is middle management at best. But you know, it's I I just oh, it felt like that was just part of his plan. Like he knew he was going to die here because he doesn't he doesn't resist it. Like he just walks away, and then once he realizes they're shooting him, he turns and shoots the one shot, like you said, like RoboCop. But uh, I don't know. I his performance in this was just so chilling. It's 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 brilliant. Though I do want to also give credit to we've mentioned her, but like. Emojin Poots is one of my favorite actresses working right now. And I think she's astonishing in this movie with how much she's able to like a particular like, keep ground. Like she's the only one in that green room who feels like she is a hundred percent confident and right. knows exactly like what the situation is, even though she's also like screwed. She at the same time knows way more than any of these people, particularly the bit where like the generator goes out and they're in the like black darkness. And it's like, Oh, but you shoot the, what are we going to do? do? And she lights that light. She's like, careful now. Let's be calm. Yeah. About this. She's very Such calm a in that. Shot. Yeah, that was that was a really well done scene as well. The just complete pitch black on your screen, and you're hearing the band members freaking out, and then she just yeah, just lights the the lighter. Careful now. Yeah, that's she. She was one of the things I also liked that 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 Saulnier did with this though is he makes it very clear to you as the audience that she is not part of the band. You know, that she, she is an outsider. And so the mm-hmm. way he frames a lot of the shots or the way that they're blocked within the scenes, she is definitely a person away. And even like, even as the band gets the mentality of we're in this together, there are other band members who remind you, no, she's not one of them. For all they know, she's a skinhead too. You know, she just is on the receiving end of this. And I, I liked the, the the little bit of story we get. They don't hit us over the head with it, but the whole romantic story you know, between the, the dead girl, like why she was actually killed. Once we finally piece that together, it's not, it doesn't hit the head, the audience over the head with it, but it's a, it's a nice explanation as to why this even happened, you know? And it actually, that made me feel even more sad for Amber because she was trying to help her friend out. Yeah. Uh, and the way that it's kind of like brushed off by uh, Patrick Stewart with, oh, lovebirds and then puts it away. Right. Just says everything you need about that. Yeah. Yeah. All right, uh, uh, one more thing I want to throw at just a tiny little bit of trivia that I noticed, and I'm watching the movie, I'm, I'm taking my copious notes as I, as I normally do, and um, when they have the conversation about the, the, the crime scene, and you have the shot through their van, uh, there was, there's a book on the console, and it's not the front of the book, it's the back cover of the book, and I was like, that's a fucking Dragonlance novel. Like, I remember those from my youth enough that I could identify it just on the design of the book. And sure enough, it is a Dragonlance novel in that scene. So it was a tiny little thing that was like, that actually tells me more about their characters. <laughs> yeah. All right, so what have we not talked about that you want to make sure we get in about Green Room? Um, I will say, you mentioned Megan Blair as like the one person you kind of had empathy for. There's only one member of that Nazi call I had any kind of like empathy for and it's that fucking dog I felt so bad for that dog the one that runs away yes and then comes back and dies by its master that's like the saddest bit which by the way you would think or I would think the whole using the feedback sound to defeat the dogs to get the dogs to go away is like that's so stupid I'm watching this movie with my dog beside me, and she did not like that part of the movie. <laughs> I was about to say that literally happened with me and my dog. My dog never reacts to the fucking TV except for that. He's just like looks up like, what the fuck, dude? Yeah. Turn that down. Stop. Mine got up and like started looking around and like started putting her head against me, like wanting some comfort. But yeah, that that scene of the dog coming back to his master, that was a heartbreaking scene. I was like, that is so Boldly manipulative emotionally, but damn, it works. <laughs> well, especially it's so much more sad knowing that like that guy gave him the injection that's gonna right. kill that dog any second. Yeah, and it's like it. It's like this weird tragedy that's circular. But like I said, these are only like Macon Blair. He made his bed. That dog didn't make that bed. <laughs> well, and I kind of felt bad for uh, the one, the one that was going to run away with the girl. You know, the one that was that was. I don't mm-hmm. remember which one was that. That was stagehand, I think. That uh, uh, he was part of the romantic link, and so when he goes inside, he switches sides and helps out the the punk band. And it's like I kind of felt bad for him. But again, when you make your bad guys neo Nazis, there's only so much empathy you can have for any of them. You know, because they have made this choice. <laughs> yeah, especially this is also the first time I watched it post a Trump presidency. <laughs> which I think also adds a bit of that too. 
Yeah, I didn't think about that. Uh, yeah, I wonder if, if Sony I may have been right about there was the perfect time to make that movie because I don't know that it would play the same. Like it, making it would be the same these days. <laughs> All right, let's move into our end credits here. First up, we have The Algorithm Says. This is a list of various movies that different algorithms say you will like because you liked this movie. So this is like a lightning round of your responses. What do you think of these movies? Do you like them? Do you not like them? Do you not see how they're connected? I will tell you I cut some really weird ones out uh, that maybe okay. I'll, I'll chat with you later about. But uh, ready? Yeah. All right, here we go. First up, Blue Ruin. Yeah, makes sense. Same director, has a similar vibe deconstruction kind of thing a stellar movie if any of you have not seen that really good one yeah i'm gonna have to check it out uh okay it follows i mean i kind of get because it's part of the same thing like i talked about the quote-unquote elevated horror kind of trend from around this time that makes sense um more supernatural and all that stuff it's still a great movie well well worth being associated with green room okay I, I have not seen that one either uh it comes at night Another like A24, similar like dress down kind of horror movie. Not one I was a huge fan of, um, but I get a bit of the comparison. Not a terrible movie, but one I have like frustrated feelings about. Gotcha. Okay. The Cabin in the Woods. Um, <laughs> we're, we're starting to diverge off the beaten path a bit, aren't we? Um, great movie. I don't know if it quite fits with <laughs> this kind of thing. Well, my, my thought was... Cabin in the Woods is also very much that ordinary people, ordinary group of people in a situation they don't understand. Now, it, it doesn't stick with them necessarily being ordinary, but to some degree, it, it kind of is. Mm -hmm. they're, they're more the stereotypes of those characters, though, whereas here it's just there's no real stereotypes. They're just normal people. Yeah. Uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane. I mean, I kind of get that in that both have a similar kind of like bottle film kind of aesthetic to them. I mean, I get that that makes sense. John Goodman has a similar kind of energy to a Patrick Stewart, I would say in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of my favorite John Goodman performances, I think still. Mm -hmm. uh, although I haven't revisited that one since I saw it in theaters and I'm wondering how well, how well I will still like it now. <laughs> uh, okay. You're next. Your next is interesting because it has a lot of the similar things on paper because it's about like a family in that case in one house trying to fend off a bunch of people that are trying to invade, but it's so much more like kind of goofy. And sort of playing on, like, it's more of a satire of, like, home invasion than it is really, like, a straight-up one. Great movie, though. Great for this season. See, I'm not a huge fan of home invasion movies, period, so I have not seen that one yet, but I might I might have to check it out. Uh, Tusk. Um, also <laughs> contained, I guess I'll give it that. There's a couple of sets for that movie. Um, but no, I don't quite. Also, weirdly, an A24 movie. Yeah. That's one of those ones that kind of sweep under the rug a bit and don't talk about. All right. One that I was surprised didn't come up on a recent episode of your podcast, Hereditary. Um, yeah, I think that that's a natural fit as well. A24, similar kind of vibe with the, the horror movies. And I mean, I loved it. I love that movie still. Um, it was almost a pick for that occult horror thing because uh, it was either that or Empty Man. We ended up with that. Oh, right, right, right. Okay, that's right. So I was surprised it didn't show up on your uh, double redo, um, but I forgot that it was one of the alternate picks. That's right. Okay. All right, two more. Wrong turn. Um, no, <laughs> I, I don't really get the similarities in that at all. <laughs> okay. And then under the skin. Oh, wow. That's, that's very interesting. I mean, it's another A24 kind of horror movie, but very much more surreal and weird. Great movie though. Uh, probably the best Scarlett Johansson in a while. What's particularly interesting about that one showing up on the algorithm is while I was talking with my other friend about Green Room and he was giving me his take on it, he asked me if I'd seen that movie. <laughs> so it was like when it showed up on the algorithm, I was like, okay, I, I have to see it now. So it's, it's connected somehow. Or Thomas will tell me it's not. I don't know. To, to tie it back into the, your last appearance on my podcast, it's like Lucy, but good. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> All right, we always end with a pop quiz uh, for multiple choice questions based on the movie. Are you ready? Go ahead. All right, number one. Several of the cast members were already familiar with music and were able to play their instruments for the musical performances. Which cast member did not know how to play their instrument ahead of time? A, Anton Yelchin, B, Aaliyah Shawkat, C, Imogen Poots, or D, Callum Turner? I'm going to take a wild step and say Callum Turner. It is Callum Turner, yes. Oh, where's my bell? Damn it. <laughs> it's always happening. There we go. There. 
<laughs> I was not prepared for recording. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I threw Imogen Poots in there. I was waiting to see. Like, she doesn't even play an instrument in the movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, number two, writer-director Jeremy Saulnier pulled from his own life and experiences in the punk world for several of the movie's ideas, which is not something he pulled from his own life. A, the van crashed out in the cornfield. B, the paintball story. C, the stabbed victim being dragged by the knife in her head. Or D, the island band conversation. I would really hope it's C. (laughs) It is C. Although he did (laughs) see that in a prison documentary, which stayed with him. And that's why that shot Mm -hmm. is in the movie. It's something he actually did see just on the screen. Uh, Number three, Saulnier said there are two answers to the final question of the movie who Pat's Island Band would be. He has only shared one of them while the other was a secret between him and Anton Yelchin. Who is the band he has revealed? A, Credence Clearwater Revival, B, The Dead Kennedys, C, The Rolling Stones, or D, Captain Geach and the Shrimp Shack Shooters? Given the movie ends on a Credence song, I'm going to guess Credence. That is the one that he has revealed so far. Yes, Credence Clearwater Revival. And that's uh, that's kind of the evolution a lot of people have assumed is because that that he says, I know who it is. She says, you know, tell somebody who gives a fuck. And then we go into a CCR song. So, yeah. All right. And then number four, Saulnier's prior film to this one was Blue Ruin. This film is titled Green Room. Saulnier stated in an interview that he was not working with color as a motif, but rather what as a shared theme. A, inept protagonists. B, people from Virginia. C, the morally unstable, or D, car dwellers. Hmm, that's tough because a lot of those don't fit. Um, I'll say uh, the inept protagonists. That is it. That's a direct quote from him that he used that phrase, inept protagonist. This was what he considered to be the third of his inept protagonist trilogy. (laughs) Which fits. His first three movies do kind of have that effect to them, all the protagonists, yeah. All right, and then a bonus question. (gasps) Who is your island band? I figured this would be it. (laughs) Um, um, You know, it's, it's weird where, can I count an individual artist as a band? Sure. Or I would say Bowie. Bowie? Okay. For the breadth of the discography and just how different every single like album is, I would say Bowie. Okay. Fair enough. If it has to be a band, I would say Gorillaz. Because <laughs> it's kind of a cheat in that you, it's like so many different artists. Well, and that's, uh, I mean, that that's actually brought up in the movie is like, you know, I mean, if you said Cream, then you get Clapton and, you know, everybody that's in, in that as individual artists as well. So that you you could you could do that, I guess. Although I think if you say gorillas, you just get the animated figures showing up with you on the island. So that's that's why I laughed. that's that's great. Why not? Of course I would want that. <laughs> what about you? What is um I would probably have to you know <laughs> this opens the door to so many jokes from the boys, but I probably would say Billy Joel. Mm, okay. <laughs> I don't know. One of my one of my favorite artists. All right, man. Where can people find you? What do you want to promote? Uh, well, I do the podcast Double Edge Devil Bill. We've mentioned a few times here. It's a podcast where every single week, Adam Thomas and I uh, pick randomly a good and a bad feature dedicated to whatever topic uh, we decide on uh, for the next episode. Um, so we're doing a bunch of horror stuff right now in October, as we tend to do. Um, we just would have recorded our Child's Play series episode um and we're also doing one on barbara crampton and one on david lynch but we do all sorts of stuff beyond horror that uh we'll uh we've done including with rafe a couple of times like cerebral sci-fi we did earlier this year with rafe and uh, we also have a patreon on that uh patreon.com slash pod if you just contribute one dollar a month you get bonus podcasts and you get to vote for certain movies and topics we do um and uh, we got a bunch of great patrons who are edged lord patrons as we call them including rafe over That's right that's right. I think you're the only one I I, I I use Patreon for. So feel honored. And it's a dollar a month. I mean, what 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 does it cost me? You, know? <laughs> you get a bang for that literal single buck. Really do. Yeah, really do. Uh, and you do some ind- independent writing. Do you want to promote any of that? Sure. Yeah, I do. Uh, I have my blog, marianithomas.wordpress.com, uh, where I'll write stuff occasionally. But also I write for film-cred.com, which is a great site, a lot of great collaborators there. And I'll have an article maybe around the time this is out, I'm not sure, but for the Halloween season, I wrote about one-off, no-sequel slashers that are underrated or really influential in ways that I Ooh, prefer. that sounds good. That sounds great. 
All right, man. Well, as always, a pleasure having you on the show. And you have yet to pick a bad movie. I shouldn't have doubted your choice of this film because I I enjoyed the hell out of it. And the more I think about it, the more I'm like, yeah, that was that was a really good movie. So uh, thank you again for introducing me to a great movie I had not seen. No problem. And as a final note, uh, just I think a, a message that Rafe and I can agree on: Nazi punks, fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. So that does it for this week, but you can keep the conversation going throughout the week on social media. Share your thoughts about Green Room, or maybe tell me about a movie you'd like to come on the show and talk about. You can find me at Talnhess, that's T-A-L-N-H-E-S-S, on Twitter and Letterboxd, or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter, on Facebook or at Have Not Seen This Podcast, or email me at HaveNotSeenThis at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week's episode. Coming to get you, Barbara. Why do you have to be so cruel? What? Show some respect. This podcast is available through all major podcast sources. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, as is just sharing the podcast with a friend and spreading the love. And if you enjoy our movie conversations, you should check out my friend Drew Meyer and I's other podcast, Never Say Die, where we take a look at movies and how to draw inspiration from them for the role-playing game world. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Thomas Mariani yet again for providing this week's conversation. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This. Be kind to each other.